The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. Swung on, long drive, right field, and this one belongs to the Reds. <laughs> UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, an in-depth look at the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians. For the fifth consecutive year, we examine the teams and their progress throughout the baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Hey, good evening everyone and welcome to another edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell as we sit back and talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. As it said, this is our fifth consecutive year of doing this. And I've got to say, I do not have a smile on my face tonight, even though this is a pretty different Monday night than it has been over the past couple of weeks. This has been the worst week combined for the Reds and the Indians that I can remember in the five years that we've done this show. And in order to talk about all of that and much, much more, have got to go down south to our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. Mark, how are you tonight, and would you agree with what I just said? I agree wholeheartedly, and... It's interesting how much more enjoyable it is to share pain with somebody else. <laughs> Depends on what that pain is, Mark. <laughs> uh, you know, the Reds last week, they were 1-5 and five on the week. The Indians were 2-3. and three. Now, that 2-3 and three may not sound too bad, but they played some pathetic baseball as far as the Indians were concerned. And the biggest bad news of the, of the week had to be when Carlos Carrasco their number two starting pitcher was hit in the face Tuesday night with a batted ball, but he's going to get back on the mound tomorrow night. Luckily, all he had was a contusion to his jaw, nothing broken. He has missed a couple of days. They, they've extended his rest out a couple of days, but he is slated to start tomorrow night. So all in all, that was good news. But as the Indians, the way they played last week, boy, it was just completely abysmal the way this team hit the way this team pitched out of the bullpen. But let's just start with Carrasco. I think the Indians dodged a bullet with the way that he was hit. Did you get a chance to see that? Yeah, I did see that. And I thought when I when I first saw it, he was done for the year. <laughs> it was that that flush. And, uh, you know, it, it's such a, you know I've, I've said this many, many, many times. It's a matter of time before somebody gets killed out there and it's going to be a pitcher. Yeah, I mean, I think the only saving grace that he had was it appeared to just somehow graze off very slightly off of the thumb on his glove and then bounced into his face. I, I think if he'd have been hit flush, Mark, he would have broken something. Yeah, and it's – I don't know what the answer is. The, 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 the problem is you have the pitchers throwing so much harder – which means if you make solid contact as a hitter, the ball is going to come in at maybe 98, 99, and go out at about 110 and 115. And there is not a human on the planet that can deflect a ball at 110 miles an hour. And don't forget that pitcher is, number one, he's off balance after his release, and he's only 55, 56 feet, 54 feet from home plate. And, again, I don't know what the answer is, Pitchers don't want to wear protective headgear, but neither did the hitters back in the 50s when they finally made that change that they had to wear some protective headgear. But uh, <laughs> this is one of those things you never want to be right about. But, you know, there, there's going to be a player who's not going to survive one of those headshots that's going to come back and, and, and create a, a tragedy that is very preventable. Mark, I have never been a big <laughs> proponent of a pitcher wearing headgear. But after doing some girls softball games over the last couple of weeks, high school girls softball games, and seeing the first baseman, third baseman, and even some pitchers wearing protective headgear, I'm starting to think that they are lightweight enough and they're able to uh, adjust to those masks that they wear out on the field that maybe it's not a bad idea for Major League Baseball to look into it a little further. But what's frustrating is It'll take a tragedy to occur before they they start doing that. Remember the kid, not the kid, the man, the first base coach a couple of years ago, uh, down in the minor leagues, was killed yes. by a line drive, 
And what did that do? Well, it prompted them to put helmets on the first and third base coaches because you can get killed. Now, what's the, the third base coach and the first base coach are further away from the hitter, substantially further. They're at least 90 feet away, and so many times, you know, 95 or 98 feet away from, from home plate. And they have to wear helmets, and a pitcher is only 50 feet or 54 feet from home plate, and he doesn't. T- explain that logic to me. Well, I really can't. You know, and this is the second year that we've actually had to talk on this show about an Indian or a Red being hit in the face with a batted ball. Of course, last year it was Araldus Chapman getting hit in the forehead with the batted ball during spring training, which caused him to miss the first month of the season. Now Carrasco. And three years ago, Mark, it was Brandon McCarthy with the A's who got hit in the face with a batted ball. So I'm starting to believe that not only do they need to look into this a little further, but you're right, it may take a tragedy for something to be done. Yeah, and that's the that's the unfortunate part. And you know it's going to happen. It's happened in the it's happened in the little league many times. Kids have been killed. It's happened in high school. It's happened in college. It happened. This guy's name was Coolball. I remember his last name, Coolball. It played for the Cardinals. He was a minor league coach, working his way up, and got hit in the actually got hit in the neck. He was looking at the runner at first base. The line drive came up, hit him on the left side of the neck, and he died. And again, he's he's twice as far away from home plate as a pitcher. And they make it. Does it make any sense that you make a hitter wear a helmet because the fear is that a ninety mile an hour fastball is going to cave in his skull and kill him? But you don't have a pitcher do it who's even closer, and the ball coming back even harder. It it just defies any kind of logic. And I hope Manfred would would at least look at it and get get the professionals in the minor leagues doing it so they're used to it by the time they get to the big leagues. Well, Manfred seems to be a little more proactive about things than Bud Selig ever was, so hopefully he'll be able to do something about this. But, as we said, the Reds and the Indians had a terrible week, a week the last week, but tonight both teams are winning. The Reds are on top of the Cubs I believe the score is now six nothing in the seventh or on the Brewers, I should say, six nothing in the seventh inning, and the Indians are on top of the White Sox, two to nothing. So things are looking up at least for the beginning of this week for both the Reds and the Indians. Well, not that I'm a pessimist, David, I'm not, but this this team is as more abundant a team as I've seen the Reds have in a number of years. And, you know, we can get into a little more philosophy about this later on. But, you know, every team has its moment. It has its its window. And maybe it's a four- or five-year window where everything is lined up. Your payroll is lined up. You develop some good young players are coming into their prime. The schedule makes sense in terms of competition in a division. And you have a chance to win it all. And that began with the Reds in 2010. And they did not win at all, but the indication was this is a team on the rise. But what has stymied this team ever since 2010 is what they have not done. After 2010, they did not make a change to the roster. And even in 2010, they had a, they had a weak hitting team comparatively, and they got blown away by the Phillies because they couldn't hit. And they made no changes. So they didn't win in 11, they improved in 12, and then, of course, the devastating loss to the Giants in the playoffs. They didn't improve again in 13, they got hurt in 14, and, and you, could, you could argue they have not substantially improved, particularly on offense, going into 2015. I, Dave, I think the train has left the station. Well, I, you know, I've watched this team a significant amount of times now that I have the Major League Baseball package. And, Mark, the thing that amazes me about the Reds, not so much the Indians, although they've got similar problems, but the Reds seem not to have any fire at all. And we talked about this a couple of years ago with Dusty Baker as manager. There just did not seem to be a fire in this team where they just went out and somebody, if something went wrong, would just absolutely go bonkers on an umpire or go off on somebody in the locker room and... This team 
just does not have that type of player to get that done. Well, it, I don't think it's necessarily a player's responsibility to do that. I think it comes from the manager. And I like Brian Price. You know, I think he's got a, a good baseball mind. Uh, he, he's very cerebral. But he is about as laid back a guy as I've seen manage a team. He, there's Talk about no spark or fire. He has none. And then you, your best player is Joey Votto. He's the same way. The whole team, you know, you're, you're very accurate, Dave. The whole team has this same kind of almost country club attitude. And I'd like to see somebody, when they strike out, break a bat over their head or something. Show some fire. And they, they, they don't have any of that. And I don't think it's, it's available on the roster right now. Yeah, I mean, the other day I was watching the Cubs play, I, I believe they were playing the Padres. It was the Padres. I'm right. This was Friday. And the Cubs had a 4-3 to lead going into the top of the seventh. And it appeared that they had struck out Will Myers. Gorgeous pitch over the outside corner of the plate. The umpire admitted later that he missed it. And he called it a ball. And the very next pitch, Myers hit it out for a three-run homer. And a 4-3 lead turned into a 6-4 loss for the Cubs. Now, Joe Madden walked out to the mound with no intention of taking the pitcher out. He All he wanted to do was stand on the mound until the home plate umpire got out there, and then he went off on that home plate umpire. And that ignited the fans, it ignited the Cubs, and the Cubs, they're in second place right now. They're playing good baseball, and Joe Madden is the type of manager, along with Terry Francona, has done this. You know, you remember Lou Pinella did this, Sparky did this, Earl Weaver. If their team needed a fire lit underneath them, they would do that. I don't think I've even seen Brian Price get out, get thrown out of a game yet. Uh, he got thrown out of one so far this year, but you know it's his his attitude uh, is too almost collegiate, I think, uh, in, in approaching a big league roster. And but what's bothering me more, I think, more troublesome, are some of his strategic decisions. Yesterday, or this past weekend, they played the Cardinals, for instance. Yes. And the Cardinals have five left-hand hitters in the starting lineup. Okay? Mm-hmm. Guess how, I know where you're going with this. Okay. Guess how many left-handed pitchers pitched for the Reds, and how many pitches did they throw? I, I don't know exactly, but I believe there was only one. Manny Parra. Okay. Uh, he threw, I think, three pitches. And where is Tony Singrani? You tell me. Tony Singrani, uh, th- there was a left-hand hitter up last night, and they had Singrani in the bullpen, and they didn't bring him in. Why in the hell do you have Singrani in the bullpen if you're not going to bring him in? Uh, Raldis Chapman, the greatest arm in baseball today, did not make an appearance in that in that series. I think I think that's hard to believe. That that's almost unbelievable. He, I think he has pitched five innings since the season began. Wow. Five innings. I, I, I don't understand when you have you have two, three left-handers in the bullpen and you don't bring one of them in and you let Bailey pitch to Shoemaker, Schumacher and he hits a, you know, a double and, and that was the ball game. And his explanation, Brian Price's explanation was, well, Homer Bailey deserved the right to pitch to that hitter. Are you out of your mind? This is professional yeah. baseball. you got to bring in a left-hander to face him, turn him around to his weak side, and it happened It happened two times this weekend, and it's happened four or five times during the season. They're afraid to use Chapman. I, I, let him pitch two innings to get a win. I mean, they had two two-run leads in the eighth inning, and they bring in a guy who, who gets the first man on. I'd bring Chapman in right then. Let him shut him down. Last night, they needed a they needed a strikeout. Leak had pitched a great game. They have the tying run at third base, and uh, Jay uh, John Jay was up. Yes, and Leak had pitched a great game. You have Chapman in the bullpen. What do you need in that position? There's there's one out in the eighth. The t- the winning run, potential running run, is at third base. What do you need in that situation? You need the strikeout. Exactly right. 
You need a strikeout. Is Mike Leak a strikeout pitcher? Not after seven and, and two and a third of innings of pitching. He's not a strikeout pitcher in the first inning. He's a ground ball pitcher. And so they don't bring in a left-hander. What's he do? He hits a fly ball to right the left field to win the ball game. So that that's happened five or six times already this year. That you want you want to scream at the TV as if it can hear you, but it, it simply makes no sense. Some of these decisions he's making, and you know, I wonder if the players are now beginning to second guess him. Well, you would think so. You would think that the players would have to sit back and wonder just just what is going on with this. And the way Joey Votto is hitting, Mark, I understand he's hitting well out of the number two hole. I get that. But the way that this team is unable to score runs, they need some run production, and they need to get him lower in the lineup. I, I know the argument for batting him second. I was a proponent of him batting second. But when you've got Brandon Phillips out of the lineup like they do tonight, now even though they've got the six nothing lead, it's it's working out well. But I think you got to put you've got to move Votto down in the lineup when Phillips is out. Well, they don't have Mezzarocco either, who's going to be your number four hitter normally. But boy, and I want to talk about that too. Yeah, I do too. Uh, the thing that has killed this team so far is Marlon Byrd. Uh, he's now zero for four tonight, and I think he came in hitting one forty five. This guy's hitting about one twenty. Uh, and what a huge, huge disappointment that has been. And you can't tell me there's not somebody on that lineup in that in, in that dugout that can't hit 120. Why don't they Why don't they give him a, a break for a couple of days and put Bosch in left field? I don't know. Bosch had a couple of hits over the weekend. Yeah, he let off the, the ninth inning last night with a hit. He had a double, I think, the night before. I, I have no idea. It, it's the same kind of crap that we got with Dusty Baker, there's just no explanation for it. Well, it starts from the top. You know, the fish dies from the head, and you've got Walt Jockety at the top and Castellini, who thinks that the, the sun rises and sets with Walt Jockety as the GM. I know you've got a little different opinion about him than I do, but, you know, the Reds go into St. Louis, they get swept. I heard Tom Brenneman tonight on Fox Sports Ohio make a very interesting comment about Devin Mezzarocco, and that is is that nobody seems to know what Mezzarocco's injury is, and it's really nobody's business. That is exactly a quote from Tom Brenneman. Now, wait a second here. If you're going to sit down one of the guys that is your cleanup hitter, that is one of your highest paid players on the team, that you're building this team's future around, and you can't tell the fans what's wrong with this guy, and why he's not playing. There's something wrong with the organization. And I said during training camp, Mark, if you remember, Mezzarocco's injury problems concern me. Are they starting to concern you? Yeah, they are. And what is very concerning about it is that he's a one-position player. He can He's not the kind of guy you can move to first base. And even if you could, you wouldn't because you got Votto there. So... It's it, it is very disconcerting that over the weekend, really, the Reds played with twenty three players because uh, certainly yesterday, because uh, Hamilton was hurt. So you either disable the guy and bring somebody else in, or, or let the world know what's going on. Yeah, do you have a clue? Any clue what's wrong with Mazzarocco? Oh yeah, they've been saying it's his hip. Now, if, well, then what is what is Brenneman making this this inane comment about? David, what have I told you about Brenneman? <laughs> yeah. He's a dope. Sorry. We know. Okay. Uh, I've never seen a guy rise as, as high as he has with no visible skill set. Well, and another, another thing that I heard tonight during the broadcast, and this was listening to the Milwaukee announcers and Brian Anderson is that the Reds' primary problem this year not only is hitting, of course, as we've talked about that, but their primary problem, when you break it down even further, is hitting with runners in scoring position. They're only batting two oh three as a team with runners in scoring position. Well, they're hitting about two oh three with no runners in position either. And that's it's they're the worst hitting team in baseball right now. And there's... There's no light at the end of the tunnel, and that's what's very disturbing. And if you're a Reds fan, uh, if you can't see that handwriting on the wall, there 
you know, there's two guys right now that are actually three. Uh, Marlon Bird, one of them, who, who is look, he's 37 years old. You you think he's going to be hitting, you know, 280 this year? He's not. He's going to hit, hit 240, 250, if that. But the two guys that are really concerning me are Billy Hamilton and Jay Bruce. This could be the beginning of the end for Jay Bruce. And I don't don't want to sound melodramatic. This guy has never been a high average hitter. But last year, he hit 217. Granted, his knee was hurt. But Dave, I've never seen a major league player who's been in the league as long as he has miss balls by two feet. I'm not exaggerating. There was a time last year I counted his his strikeouts, and he had like nine strikeouts and 11 at-bats. And in that particular scheme of, of, of at-bats, he was missing the ball by 18 to 24 inches. That's that's almost impossible to do. You could, you could put a blindfold on and swing and be within a foot of the ball. Mm-hmm. And this is a major league hitter. The ball bouncing in front of the plate, the ball over his head. And it's gotten no better this year. He's hitting under 200, and his mechanics are so screwed up, I don't know how they fix it. Does he have a lot of power? Yeah, if he makes contact, he never makes contact. And Billy Hamilton? This guy's capable of hitting 150 this year, Dave. He's so overpowered at the plate. He got a triple tonight, and he runs great. But it doesn't matter if you if you can steal bases, you can't steal first, and he can't get on first. And Mark, what amazes me is they use the excuse that he had a pulled groin last night that he couldn't play. Hamilton, I'm speaking of, and yet he comes out tonight and uses his speed. Now, I, anybody who's had a pulled groin knows that it just doesn't cure itself overnight. Well, it's it's. <laughs> The injury to me is, is is secondary. It's the fact that good pitching, even mediocre pitching, just overpowers Billy Hamilton. He's just not physically strong enough yet to 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 handle major league pitching. And he's hitting 170, I think, right now, 175, 180, something like that. But it's one thing if you're hitting into tough luck. He's not hitting into tough luck. He's just not hitting. He's popping the ball up. He hits routine fly balls, and that's the kiss of death for somebody who's supposed to be a base stealer. He's got to learn to bunt. He has not learned to bunt. The last three bunts I've seen him attempt, they were over his head or outside by a foot. So those two guys, particularly Hamilton and Bruce, to me are the linchpins to this team this year, and I just don't see it getting any better. Well, on the other hand, the Cleveland Indians are stuck with a major quagmire in their hands. Now, it may have rectified itself on Saturday. They brought up Danny Salazar to take over the number four spot in the rotation. Salazar had a good outing against Columbus a week ago and pitched very well against Minnesota on Saturday. He went six innings, struck out ten, walked two in the ball game, and the Indians win. He only gave up two runs in that outing. So he, he pitched an outstanding game. It's the best game the Indians have had out of their four or five starters this year. T.J. House is another one that the Indians have to be concerned about. He's gone out to the mound twice this year, Mark, and just been lambasted. But the major concern that the Indians have to be worried about is their bullpen. Brian Shaw, a year ago, was one of the leaders in the major leagues in appearances. This year, he's not been able to get anybody out. Cody Allen... The closer for the Indians, he has struggled in his appearances. You've got Mark Zipchinski, who's had a tough time as their primary left-hander coming out of the bullpen. They moved Zach Crockett to the minor leagues because he wasn't getting anybody out. Nick Hagedon, who's another one of their left-handers, can't seem to get anybody out. They moved Zach McAllister from the starting rotation in that number four spot into the bullpen. Hopefully he'll be able to solidify it somewhat. But they're playing right now, whenever Terry Francona goes to the bullpen, it's it's Russian roulette 
with anybody that he brings in. And you cannot win in the major leagues if you don't have a consistent bullpen anymore. Well, that's true. And the Reds have lost two games this year where they had two run leads in the eighth inning, ended up losing both those games. You know, you win those games, and all of a sudden people are saying, well, you know, not a great start, but not a bad start. But when it, it's such a gut-wrenching loss when you have a lead late, and then your middle relievers come in and, and screw the pooch. You know, it, it's just, it just takes the guts out of a team, and it's hard to come back from that. Well, you know, granted, this is only the third week of the season. And maybe we're making a mountain out of a molehill, but I've seen enough seasons in Major League Baseball and enough teams to know that the Indians, I think, and I was saying this two weeks ago, that I think their major problem this year is going to be their bullpen. You've been saying about the Reds for the last three years, their problem is going to be hitting. And nothing has been done with the Reds hitting. Nothing this year has been done as far as the Indians' bullpen is concerned. And both of these teams have to get these two problems straightened out. But again, it's like a broken record, Mark, especially with the hitting. The Indians have had a problem hitting this year. The Reds have had a problem hitting this year. It's a broken record. These teams have had the same problems year after year after year. There have been people out there that they've been able to inquire about and possibly make a trade for or sign as a free agent, and neither ball club has been able to pull the trigger and get it done. Well, that's where I hold Walt Jockety responsible. And the only way he's not responsible is if he's getting directions from the front office saying, don't make a deal. Now, if that's the case, then he is off the hook. He can't, you know, force management to, to pay salaries. But this team has not improved at all this year. Uh, it's arguably worse uh, than it was last year because they gave away some good starting pitching. Uh, but, you know, the the excuses run dry after a while. And, you know, when you – you and I have been around baseball for a long time, but we're not the only ones. Everybody who looked at this team in the offseason, the Reds I'm talking about, said it's going to finish last. It's going to finish last. <clears throat> now, does that mean everybody on the damn planet is wrong and Jockety is right? Is is that what he believes? Did, does he see something that no one else has seen? Is he? The- I actually think, Mark, that his ego believes that. It's, but Dave, if you're a general manager, you must read the papers. You must, you must understand what people are saying about your team. And even, I agree. Even if you don't agree with it, there would be some kind of introspection. We say, geez, there are 854 baseball writers in the United States, and every one of them says my team's going to finish last. Not me, though. I think they're going to compete. Are you on drugs? You can't compete with that offensive lineup. No, you can't. And, And it's one thing to tell the public, hey, we've got a team to compete. It's another thing in private to tell your subordinates that, hey, we've got a problem here. We need to find a right handed hitting power stick to get into this lineup that's the same thing with the indians it's the same thing with the reds but i really believe mark i I truly do that walt jockety's ego believes that he is the one that's right and everybody else in the world is wrong well i've never met the man Uh, i would hope that's not true Uh, but i think at some point either you have to admit to yourself or to your ownership team hey guys it's not going to be our year so we're not going to waste a lot of money and going out and get a, a good young power hitter like we like we could have, and instead we're going to bring in a 37 year old left fielder. <laughs> you really think that's the solution? Uh, no, it, it's really amazing. Well, good news for the Indians though; they've hit a couple of home runs tonight, and it, one was by Ryan Rayburn, his first of the year, and another one is by Brett Hayes, the Indians' new backup catcher, who's got a job simply because. Jan Gomes is out for a couple of months with that sprained ACL. And it was Perez yesterday, Roberto Perez yesterday, Mark, that hit a home run against Minnesota and helped propel the Indians to a win. He hit it, He hit one the farthest that anyone has hit one at Target Field, according to what some of the reports were. And so the Indians right now have gotten three home runs from their catchers since Jan Gomes has gone down, and I'm not sure... 
so from the catching position, the Indians have had four home runs this year from three different players. I'm not sure Gomes would have contributed four home runs, if you get where I'm going with on this, uh, by himself playing full-time. So the Indians are getting pretty good production from their catching position when a lot of people felt when Jan Gomes went down, it was going to be a problem spot. Now that's not saying it's not going to be. I'm just saying right now it's been a production spot, not a problem spot. Well, that's that's true, and I saw that they hit a couple home runs. The catcher's head, I didn't know they hit three. But Jan Gomes, I mean, that, that guy can stick. He, he's, he, he's a really good hitter, and he has one of the best swings I've seen on a catcher in a number of years. Uh, I was really impressed by him, and, and he's solid behind the plate, too. So, But the, the other thing, when you have a player like that, they stretch out the lineup, and they, they make managers do things they wouldn't normally do. So even if maybe somebody in that position has been productive, you don't you can't prove a negative. So you don't know what impact it's had not having Gomez in there. Uh, you know when you go up and down the lineup. Well, the Reds after last week they're five and seven. They're in fourth place in the division. The Indians are four and seven. They're tied with Chicago for last place. But if they can hold on a win tonight against the White Sox. They will be in fourth place in that central division. And a former catcher for the Indians, who probably is not going to catch anymore, is Carlos Santana. And Mark, he hit his 100th career home run yesterday against Minnesota. Now, he's the third Indian switch hitter to hit 100 home runs in the last 25 years. Can you name the other two? Uh, did Robbie Alomar hit 100? No. not He did in his career, but not with the Indians. Okay. I thought he had uh, over 200 home runs as a second baseman. Let me see. That's a, it's, that's a good. Uh, that's a good one. One is playing with Detroit right now. He's their designated hitter. Hmm. Victor Martinez. Oh sure. And the other one, believe it or not, I would have actually gotten this question. Carlos Baerga. He, you know, he had played, 104. He played with the Reds too, Carlos Baerga. Did he play with the Reds? Yeah. Indus- I, I don't remember him. It must have been just a short stint. Yeah, it wasn't a long time. Yeah, Victor Martinez had 103, Carlos Baerga 104. So for all intents and purposes, Carlos Santana should obliterate that record as far as switch hitters are concerned. But, Mark, you know, we've talked about the Indians and the Reds, but in your opinion, right now at the three-week mark of the regular season, what do you think the Reds have to do to improve and stay in contention in the Central? Well, they have to score more runs. They're getting some decent pitching. Starting pitching isn't bad. Uh, the thing that's really killed them is their um, lack of middle relief and timely hitting. But, Dave, we've been saying that for for four years. Even when they won, they, they, were, they were at least getting some power. They're not getting power. They're not getting any kind of hitting with men on base, except for tonight, it's an aberration. I hope it's the begin beginning of something big. Uh, I don't know where it's going to come from, though. Well, I think one of the things that Brian Price has to do, and he did it in this first inning, but it didn't lead to any runs scored, was put the runners, the base runners, in motion. And he did that with Todd Frazier with two outs in the top of the first mark, and Frazier stole second. And the throw went into center field, and he took third. Now, Jay Bruce couldn't take advantage of it, but I think that's something that the Reds have to do is get back to playing some small ball because I believe that when you play small ball, the big ball is going to follow. Yeah, they have Jay Bruce hitting fourth tonight, I believe. And uh, They do. That's the other interesting thing. Uh, when you have, you know, they, they, so they're going left, left, right, left, right. Uh, which is a nice mix-up. You know, that, that's a way to mix it up, I think, the, the appropriate way to do it. But the it doesn't do any good if your number four hitter is going to be hitting, you know, 180. Uh, it's just people just, you know, Votto's never going to see a pitch, and neither is Frazier, uh, because they know they've got number four, hit, you know, hitting under 200, and that's Jay Bruce. Well, and as far as the Indians are concerned, they're, as I said, they're starting a series with the White Sox tonight, and, they're winning it this evening, but they've got to get some things going also as far as offensively is concerned. But I, I think the thing that the Indians need to do, Mark, to stay in contention this year, and, and I didn't think they'd make the playoffs. I thought they'd be in contention, but I didn't think they'd make the playoffs, is 
They've got to get their bullpen situation straightened out, and they've got to do it quickly because they right now are four games behind in the Central Division, behind Kansas City and Detroit. And if they look up at the end of April like they did a year ago, down eight or nine games, it's going to be a long season and a long, hard season for them to make up that amount of games, even though a majority of the season would be in front of them against teams the caliber of Kansas City and Detroit. You know, I'm more optimistic about the Indians, frankly, than I am the Reds. I I think they're off to a slow start. But if you look on paper of what they have, they have a very balanced team. They've got good offense. They've got good defense. And Gomes comes back in six weeks and whenever it's going to be. I mean, they they are a solid team. Uh, I think the bullpen will get better there. Uh, with the Reds, I, I don't have that belief offensively. I just don't think they have good enough players to compete, particularly in the toughest division in baseball, that the Indians do. Now, do I think the Indians are going to beat, beat out Detroit? No, I don't. <laughs> I think Detroit is just a lot better than Cleveland. But I think the Indians are better than, than the White Sox. I think they are they can compete with Kansas City. They're better than Minnesota. So I, I think they'll be there. Uh, I'm a little more optimistic than you might uh, than you might be about the Indians. Well, they certainly weren't better than Minnesota this weekend. They did luck out and win one of the three games, but Minnesota beat them up in two of the three games over the weekend. You know, there's a couple things I want to bring up tonight around Major League Baseball, Mark, and one is very interesting that Joe Madden is doing right now that's really going under the radar as far as the Cubs are concerned. You know, Tony La Russa brought this up several years ago, and you know my feelings on Tony La Russa. Everybody seems to think he's a genius, but I was never one of those people. But he did bring up something that was fairly interesting a few years ago, and that was actually moving the pitcher from the number nine spot in the batting order in the National League to the number eight spot. And it was always talked about, but nobody ever really did it. This year, Joe Madden, in his first year as a manager in the National League, has done it on an exclusive basis. He has put the pitcher in the number eight spot and a number another batter in the number nine spot. Now, Mark, tell me, what is the rationalization behind that? Well, typically when that's done, and it's done a lot in college and amateur ball, is if you have two a very fast guy who may not be a high average guy, you put him number nine, then you have two basically leadoff hitters going back to back. So the idea is to develop speed. I don't know who he had hitting ninth, but typically it's not a power hitter. It's somebody who can be like a your your back to you know your leadoff guy one and one a. So you could have the pitcher make the last out. Now you get two guys you know leading up that have good on base percentages. They're fast. That's been the the mentality of people who have done that. Are, are you a proponent of that move? I I don't think it matters, frankly. I, I mean, everybody makes a big to do of it. I don't think it's that uh, you know it's not going to be a a deal breaker one way or the other. So uh, in in terms of the impact on a game. Uh, I don't think it's going to be substantially different one way or the other. You know, as far as what the Cubs are doing tonight, I'm bringing up their batting order here right now, and they've got Arietta batting eighth, and Herrera, the second baseman, bats ninth. And then they've got the top of the order and Dexter Fowler coming up to lead things off along with Soleil uh, in right field. So that's that would be their next their nine, one, and two hitters, and there's a lot of speed there. Yeah. I mean, that's what a lot of college managers do that or college coaches do that uh, to get a guy who may not be a, you know, a power hitter or a, a high average hitter, but he's fast and maybe he could bunt. Uh, so the, the, the bad part about that is that the number seven hitter then uh, is not going to see a lot of good pitching, <laughs> you know, because you got the you got the pitcher coming up behind him and seven hitters can be pretty productive. Why isn't this something that the Reds don't do, especially when Mike Leake is pitching, because he's an excellent hitter. You could put him at number eight in the batting order and put someone else at number nine. Well, like I said, I, I don't think many managers think it's going to make a, a big difference who hits eighth or ninth. Now, I have seen, I remember one time 
uh, back, I guess it was in the 70s, Sparky Anderson was the manager, that they had a number of really weak-hitting shortstop, and the Reds had a big first inning going, bases were loaded, and he pinch hit for the shortstop <laughs> in, in the first inning, in the first inning. And I remember thinking, that's a pretty gutsy thing to do. <laughs> the bold move. Yeah, bold move. And it didn't work. Uh, so the Reds just, by the way, Braun just hit a home run on Badenhoff. This Badenhoff guy, he, I don't think he's pitched a perfect inning yet this year. He <laughs> just gave up a home run to Braun, and now it's 6-1. to one. Is his mentor J.J. Hoover? This guy has nothing, Dave. I mean, he, he has he has no location. He has no fastball. Uh, he throws it right over the middle of the plate, and Braun hits it about nine miles. But then, again, we're back to that issue on the the middle relief, and he just hit this ball about four hundred and fifty feet. <clears throat> well, you know, the one thing I've noticed after watching three of uh, these Clefani's starts, I think this kid has got ace stuff. Yeah, he's he's scary. Uh, I think his ERA now is what below below one, and he, he's so effortless out there. He doesn't look like he's throwing hard. And the ball is ninety six, ninety seven. Uh, that that was that was a smart trade, getting rid of Latos. And as more than one person has said, getting rid of Latos was addition by subtraction. No matter who you got, you get rid of a big contract, you get rid of a airhead. <laughs> well, another thing. With the Cubs, Mark, and you know what I'm going to bring up tonight, is the fact that on Friday, the Cubs pulled the trigger and brought up Chris Bryant the day that he was eligible to keep a year longer as far as his arbitration and free agency was involved. He will he will not be eligible until 2021 for free agency and 2020 for arbitration now. So the Cubs waited until that date. They brought him up, and I think this is something on the next collective bargaining agreement that you're going to see the union is really going to go after that. Well, it was their rule. And uh, will you finally admit I was right? The Cubs did it the right way? You know, there are people that that know me and love me and know that I never admit when anyone is right. <laughs> I, I'm right 85% of the time. Well, I'll grant you that. This was just part of your 15%. The the Cubs did it. If I was the Cubs, if if that was the hand I was dealt, I I sure would have kept him down there until this week. Who cares? Somebody's going to, you know, it doesn't make any difference. He doesn't care. The team doesn't care. Uh, So I, I think you just saved yourself a bunch of money, and I would do the same thing. If those are the rules and you don't like them, then change them. But the Cubs, I thought, played that absolutely perfectly. Well, you know, you look at that, Mark, and I thought another bold move by Joe Madden, although it didn't pay off, he immediately inserted Chris Bryant into the cleanup spot in that first game against San Diego. Now, you sit down, Mark, and and if you're a player that's been with the Cubs, especially Anthony Rizzo, or Starlin Castro, or, or one of those players, and you say, man, this kid comes up and he's already in the cleanup spot. And what about Chris Coughlin, who's been hitting pretty well out of the cleanup spot, and immediately he's moved out. That could have really generated some bad feelings on that team. I think, guys, when you see a, a guy like Bryant come out, and you see him play, his teammates know how good he is, and... I, I had no problem with putting him in fourth spot. Uh, he, he moved right in nicely. Actually, he played pretty good defense. He only had one one or two hits over the weekend, I think. But I was surprised how well he played on defense. That's been, of course, the big bugaboo about him. Is he going to be able to play major league defense? And from what I saw, he played pretty well. Yeah, and I saw him make a good play against Pittsburgh tonight in the Cubs-Pittsburgh game uh, in a rundown. He He's done some excellent work out there as far as third base is concerned. He got his first hit on uh, Saturday, major league hit. I'm not sure what he did yesterday, but, you know, I I, I am not concerned about this kid from all intent 
intentions. He is going to be a great major leaguer. And just because he's only got one hit in his first two or three games, Mark, I don't think that bodes badly for the kid at all. Oh, no. I mean, it's uh, when you have a swing like his, man, I, I saw six or seven of the home runs he hit uh, in spring training. And I'm telling you, this guy's the real deal. He, yeah, he's got a great swing. Yeah. Yeah, he does. And, and that's his swing when you compare it to like Todd Frazier, as long as he keeps an awareness of the strike zone, this guy is going to be a, a real stud. And in terms of his ability to to field, they'll find a spot for a bat like that. Whether it's first base, third base, left field, there'll be a spot. And yeah. he, he, that that's that's a once in a lifetime swing that a young man has. Are you like me, and you feel like the Cubs, the sky is the limit? For this team, I don't know of any other team that is like this one as in Major League Baseball as far as having the youth. This team really reminds me, Mark, of the, the team in the 90s the Indians had when they started out young and, and grew together. Yeah, I, I think the Cubs, they say that the best talent is still in the minor leagues. I've forgotten the kid's name, um, but he, I think he's a shortstop. He's, he's the best of the lot, according to everybody I've heard. The thing that bothers me about the Cubs is they're starting pitching. And I, I, I am not a big John Lester fan. I, Neither am I. I. I just don't think he has shut down stuff. Uh, he, he's a left-hander that wins, but he I don't think he's dominant. And the kind of money they put into John Lester, I think, could come back and haunt them. They need to go out. You know who they need? Who? If you were the Cubs, who would you try to sign either trade for or sign this offseason. I don't even have the list of free agents in front of me. Go ahead and tell me. Johnny Cueto. Ah. He's used to pitching in the division. He is used to pitching in a small ballpark and doing exceedingly well. He is arguably the second or third best pitcher in the American in the National League, maybe all of baseball. And, you know, he, he's the guy who makes the Cubs. And if they sign him to a free agent contract, and I believe they can afford it, uh, he's the kind of guy that gets them into the World Series. Well, Mark, they're really only playing, paying three guys big contracts. Lester, Rizzo, and um, uh, Ramirez. I'm trying to think. Ramirez, yes. Yeah, I agree. And Ramirez, you know, this is his last year probably. And, uh, in fact, did he, did he announce his retirement? I thought he. Oh, you're talking about on Milwaukee, or Ramirez on Milwaukee. Yeah, he he announced his. No, the the pitcher on the Cubs. There's another pitcher on the Cubs that they went out. Oh, and right. Signed this this off season. Yeah, and I I know who you mean. Oh, what's his name? Uh. But as far as that's concerned, yeah, I believe that they could afford him because everybody else is so far underneath the arbitration level that they could they could sock as much money as they want to into that pitching staff. And win, and then by the time they get to the World Series and maybe win a World Championship and and end that curse with the Cubs at Wrigley Field, then they've got these pitchers falling off of their payroll, and they can pay the other players and keep them. Yeah, I mean they've got a lot of stuff going for them, but the biggest thing they have going for them is a whole bunch of money, and that's gonna. I think with this ownership team, uh, Ricketts is willing to pay. Uh, the time is right. And I said at the beginning of the show, every team goes through a period where they have their window. The Indians had their window in the mid-90s and did not win a world championship. And the Reds had theirs and did not win a world championship. And teams either take advantage of it or they don't. The Reds didn't go far enough. They didn't, they didn't go hard enough. The Indians just got beat. And they, they had, you know, I think the Indians in the mid-90s you know that, that that was a great team. It wasn't just a good team. That was a great team, and they they just didn't the chips didn't fall their way. But with with regard to the Reds, they they just did not take advantage of the roster they had and go out and get that one key player. And I think the Cubs will. I think this is an ownership. The time is right. A new stadium. Tremendous young talent, and that, that the Cubs could be around for a long time. You know, you mentioned the Indians. The one trade they did not make that may have put them over the top 
for several years, Mark, was Jarrett Wright to Montreal for Pedro Martinez. Oh, yeah. That's the one deal they did not make. Now, now Wright pitched outstanding in that 97 World Series, and during the offseason, Montreal wanted him in exchange for Pedro Martinez, and John Hart said no. Well, uh, again, you, you have your shot, and I, I think when teams go for it, when, when they take a chance and go for it, like the A's did last year, at the end of the, you know, the second half of the year, and they signed Lester uh, with the idea that he's going to take him to the World Series and they win a world championship. Well, you know, if they don't, fans don't care. They, you know, they, they, the attitude of the fans is, hey, they tried. It didn't work out. They tried. And what is infuriating, though, when you're a, a fan and the team does not try. I remember the White Sox several years ago, maybe 10 years ago, they were, what, three and a half games out of first place at the All-Star break, and clearly in the race, and they just traded everybody away. You're right. Yeah. They didn't try. And that's what drives fans nuts. Certainly, it drives me nuts. This whole winter, every time I picked up the sports page or got online, I, I went to Red's Trade Rumors, and nothing happened. Jeez. What do you need? Well, you need offense, and you don't get it. How much different, you know, you can go back to the year 2001, Mark, and look and see one move that was not made that could have changed the history of the Cubs. And that move was, and it's well documented, it's in the movie Moneyball, when Billy Bean was offered the general manager's job with the Boston Red Sox and turned it down and stayed with Oakland, and that opened up the way for Theo Epstein to get the GM's job with Boston. They won two World Series, actually three World Series, if you want to count 2013, but he was gone that year, but that was still the team that he built. He goes to Chicago, and look at what he's built in such a short period of time with the Cubs. If Billy Bean makes that move to Boston, we may never hear about Theo Epstein. Well, you can't prove a negative, and you can't you know, make the statement that they wouldn't have won with Billy Bean as the GM. Now it, it's unlikely that he would have done the same, you know, had the same moves uh, that uh, Epstein did. But you know, if Epstein wins in Chicago, my God, there'll be a, a statue of him in front of Fenway Park and Wrigley Field. He'll be a Hall of Famer. Oh, absolutely. He may be. Yeah. He may be one already. Absolutely, and and that and that's my point. I mean, if Billy Bean takes that job with Boston, we never hear about Theo Epstein. Yeah, that's true. It's true. Yeah, we just never hear about it. Mark, uh, another thing. Pete Rose has been named a new analyst for Fox Sports 1. Now, this may seem like a very minor move to a lot of people. He's going to be their new baseball analyst on Fox Sports 1. But a very wise man asked me yesterday... And I started hearing scuttlebutts about it today. This move had to be approved by Major League Baseball. Now, a lot of people don't understand that, but it did have to be approved by Major League Baseball because Pete can't come anywhere near a Major League Baseball game without buying a regular ticket. This is going to give him a media pass to all Major League games. And another thing was that this very wise man said to me yesterday when I mentioned this to him on the phone, he said to me, they're getting ready to put him in the Hall of Fame, aren't they? This is the way the media works. Now, is this a good sign for Pete's reinstatement, Mark? Uh, I'll give a qualified maybe. Um, as I said last week, I don't believe they're going to do it at the All-Star break. Uh, if they do it, they'll do it before or after, in my opinion, because they, they don't want Pete to... Uh, take away from the the event itself. Now, in, in terms of Cincinnati, would would how would the players feel if Pete got all the attention and the players didn't? I, I don't know. That's a rhetorical question. Uh, but that's what they're going to weigh. But th they're certainly giving Pete an exposure he's never had before. And you know, did we talk about this last week about Gaylord Perry? Yes. Okay. Uh, that that was the most hypocritical thing I'd ever heard. And for him to say that about Pete Rose after he cheated his whole career. But, you know, I, I think Pete is, he, he's done his time 
And for God's sake, let the guy, you know, enjoy the last few years of his life. He's, what, 74 years old now, 72 years old. Uh, he's he's not going to be managing a Major League Baseball team again. We all know that, but get him into the Hall of Fame. You know, I think this is a brilliant first step by Rob Manfred. He had to be approved by Major League Baseball. A lot of people don't understand that. He's been approved by Major League Baseball. Fox Sports 1 would have never hired him had this not been run past Major League Baseball. I think this is a brilliant first step, and I think this is just step one of maybe a four- or five-step procedure to Pete being reinstated by the new commissioner. I, I've really got more more hope for this, and I'm looking through it from not rose-colored glasses, but, Mark, I can see light at the end of the tunnel, and it's finally not an oncoming train. I think this is going to happen, and I think it'll happen. I believe it's going to happen at the All-Star break. But if it doesn't, it'll happen before the end of the season. Well, first of all, I hope you're right. I hope it does happen at the All-Star break. But there's a conundrum here. Uh, Major League Baseball does not control the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame is a separate entity. They, by their own volition, nothing to do with Major League Baseball, they made the decision not to allow Pete Rose in because he was suspended. That was their call. It wasn't it wasn't Major League Baseball's call? So, if they if Major League Baseball reinstates Pete, does that mean that he could coach? Because reinstatement means well, it depends upon the extent of reinstatement. They could reinstate him and still say that he's not eligible to be an on-field personnel. On what basis? If he's reinstated, he's reinstated. That that's the conundrum. And if he's reinstated, then there's no rule that says the Hall of Fame has to follow that reinstatement. They could still keep him out. Well, I, I understand that, but I but baseball's got a lot of options here that they could actually do with Pete. I think the main thing is that Pete wants is to be reinstated so that he's eligible to be in the Hall of Fame. I think Pete Rose would accept just reinstatement into the Hall of Fame. But I don't think he even wants to be on the field anymore. But that's not that's not up to Manfred. That's my point. He can be reinstated but not be in the Hall of Fame. And if he's reinstated, there's nothing legally to keep him from being you know being hired by a major league team. See, I thought the I thought the suspension there there is a clause with the Hall of Fame and the Baseball Writers Association of America that does not allow anybody that is suspended to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. I thought there's a clause in that that they're not allowed. The baseball writers have nothing to do with that. It's it's the Hall of Fame committee that made the decision to exclude Pete from the Hall of Fame because he had been suspended by Major League Baseball. Okay. Not the writers. So if he's reinstated, this is what I heard on the radio over the weekend, if he's reinstated, he's reinstated. That means the Reds could hire him as a manager if they wanted to. They won't. But you know, they could. But he could be reinstated by Major League Baseball and still not be eligible for the Hall of Fame unless they change their, you know, they're going to change their idea about it. But a lot of former players don't want Pete in. Well, I'll tell you what. Baseball withstood George Steinbrenner hiring Billy Martin five times. And it's still around. So Pete Rose being a manager or even a base coach for somebody is not going to kill or hurt the image of Major League Baseball. Of course not. Of course. Not. You know, it's 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 just not not going to not going to happen. Mark, what do the Reds have going this week? They've got four games uh, this week uh, against the Milwaukee Brewers, and I did not check the, the their, their next weekend mainly because no matter who they play, they're not going to probably do very well. I know I'm pessimistic right now, Dave. But uh, there's nothing. I'm glad they won tonight, uh, and maybe their their bats will turn around. But uh, uh, <laughs> this could be a long season. Yeah, the Reds won tonight, six to one over Milwaukee. And this weekend they've got the Cubs Friday and then Saturday and Sunday in the afternoon. They're returning home after that long ten game road trip. The Indians right now are playing the White Sox in U.S. Cellular Field. And that game is going on right now, and the Indians are leading two to nothing. And then they play them tomorrow and Wednesday afternoon, and then they're at Detroit Friday, Saturday afternoon, and Sunday afternoon. So, Mark, 
it's been a disappointing week for both the Reds and the and the Cleveland Indians, but hopefully things are looking up as the Reds have won to start the week and the Indians are leading, so hopefully they'll be able to do it and maybe it'll be a little brighter next week when we get back together. Let's hope so. That, that would be good news. We'll, we'll talk to you again next week, Mark. All right, Dave. Have a good one. And our next broadcast game will be coming up tomorrow afternoon. We'll be bringing you the Waynedale at Dalton High School baseball game. That will be on at 5 o'clock. You can join Patrick Mitchell and I with all the play-by-play action beginning at that one at around 4.50. Tomorrow afternoon, first pitch is at 5 o'clock. And Mark and I will be back again next Monday night at 9 o'clock with another Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. That's going to do it for tonight's show. Our thanks to you for listening and Greg Mitchell, our producer. For Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next week, good night, everybody. Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially with.